they didn't bring pitchforks, but they brought their pen and they were ready to sign up with their checkbooks and they said, bring it on. We want this now. This is episode 274 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Public Utility District 3 in Mason County, Washington, delivers symmetrical gigabit connectivity to every customer in its service area. They have no speed, capacity, or data thresholds. You have access to a gigabit regardless of whether you're in a rural area or within city limits, and whether or not you're a household, business, or one of the ISPs that work with PUD3. This week, Justin Holsgrove and Joel Meyer from PUD3 in Mason County spend some time talking with Christopher about how the Public Utility District is working to bring high-quality connectivity to each customer. In addition to describing their plan to build out and manage the network, Justin and Joel share the story of how connectivity has come to be offered from PUDs in Washington. Now here's Christopher with Justin Holsgrove and Joel Meyer talking about Public Utility District 3 in Mason County, Washington. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, And today I'm speaking with Justin Holsgrove, the Telecommunications and Community Relations Manager up at Mason County's Public Utility District Number 3. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. I'm excited to to learn more about what you're doing. But but first, I have to introduce our other guest, Joel Meyer, the Public Information and Government Relations Manager at PUD Number 3. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a beautiful day in the fiberhood. (laughs) <laughs> That's good. Joel, I'd like to start with you. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about maybe um, Mason County, how it's situated, and a little bit of the background of the public utility district? Sure. Uh, Mason PUD3 is located on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. Uh, the main city in uh, in our service territory is the city of Shelton. And uh, the county has about 60-some-odd thousand uh, residents, and it's uh, relatively defined by by natural resources, uh, including forest and aquaculture. Uh, we have a large number of seasonal customers that we serve for Mason County PUD number three. Uh, about 25% of our customers, as a matter of fact, are seasonal. They come here for the beautiful uh, uh, views, the water, and the forests. Uh, but we have approximately 34,000 customers that we serve with electricity. But we also, of course, as as is the focus of this interview, have a uh, fiber optic network that supports our network and also uh, provides services via wholesale to customers throughout. But in terms of the history of PUD3, it's an interesting, rocky start. Uh, but I think that uh, it has proved for the customers of Mason County a real benefit. The Washington State Grange back in the 1920s was very upset that there wasn't uh, enough electricity being brought out to rural areas of Washington State. And if it was brought out by the companies that provide electricity at that time, it was brought out at extremely high cost and high rates. So in the 1920s, the Grange started a petition drive in Washington State, and Washington State's initiative number one, the very first one that was uh, brought to the legislature uh, in the state's history to form public utility districts for electricity and a number of other uh, services that are outlined in the state law. Uh, It got onto the ballot and was overwhelmingly approved. Uh, Mason County PUD number three and its partner were the only county in Washington state that has two operating public utility districts within its boundaries, PUD one. PUD one started service in 1934 
TUD3 had to go through a long list of legal uh, challenges until in 1939, uh, we were authorized by the state Supreme Court to start serving customers. And our first customer base was eight customers. <laughs> and <laughs> that's grown over the years as, as it's gone forth. But uh, PUD3's public utility districts in general, and Mason PUD3 in particular, has always had kind of the long view uh, what do our customers need to be successful in either their home life or in their businesses? How can we provide better service to do that? Uh, and and we've just slowly grown our systems, benefits, and its capabilities to meet that. And in the late 1990s, we started looking at using a fiber optic network to support our facilities. And in 2000, the state legislature authorized us the authority to sell wholesale. But Justin has a lot more information on, on how we went from there. Yeah, I think it's a, a really great um, story when we talk about the origins of public utility districts, how uh, they were formed for the very purpose of bringing a, a required utility and, and a necessary utility or an essential utility to the rural communities. In that case, it was electricity. We would take that for granted now. But uh, today, uh, we're looking at that as high-speed broadband as an essential utility. And um, uh, we're working as a public utility to bring uh, high-speed broadband to communities uh, that are in the rural setting, rural context that don't have other options for high-speed internet. And uh, we see a lot of parallels between the um, electrification of rural uh, Mason County or rural America, if you will, um, and the, the, the high-speed broadband infrastructure being put into rural America. And we're happy to continue our legacy to help support our customers in that way. And Justin, I, I get a sense that with the utility district, the, the fiber was probably built first to support um, actual uh, infrastructure, probably electricity, water services maybe, but the infrastructure that you're already doing. Yes, absolutely. That's correct. So the primary uh, goal of our fiber optic network is to support, as you said, uh, electrical infrastructure. That means uh, we network um, our facilities in the field, such as substations or reclosers, uh, regulators, uh, different offices. We have several communications towers throughout Mason County that uh, we have a fiber backbone to, and these support things like our grid modernization project, our advanced metering infrastructure, uh, and our uh, radio system um, so that our crews can communicate to each other uh, and operate the system. So we do have a, a very extensive fiber network throughout Mason County, but it is primarily backbone. And part of our history on that is is when we first started putting this up, there were there was great interest from uh, some of the larger customers as well. As we were putting this up, you know, they they had a, a real need for higher bandwidth uh, services. And so as we expanded uh, for electrical needs, we also were able to pick up a couple of our uh, larger customers. We had goals of picking up our top 20, and then it grew to um, top 50 customers. Uh, we brought our fiber network to areas such as our port districts and throughout our downtown districts. But when it gets into the rural communities, what we found ourselves in is that we didn't have a plan to um, have a long-term uh, expansion and, uh, and a long-term plan to serve all customers in a neighborhood, if you will. And so uh, we had to really uh, solve that problem. Well, and this is, this is something that I, I, I actually, in, in some ways, sympathize, I suspect, with, with you, Joel, in that um, 
I've seen where residents uh, can get quite forceful about really wanting to see uh, the utility district be more aggressive in building out fiber, uh, whereas and you might find other people are equally aggressive about the public utility district not doing it. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about that. And I, I think there maybe things came to a head a bit in 2015 for you. That's a very good point because uh, over the years and and. I think that we're, we became somewhat the victim of our success on the electric side uh, and the expectations of what we could provide on the broadband side. Uh, for example, over the, over the years that we have had the authority from the state legislature to provide wholesale telecommunications, uh, we have heard long, loud, and often from many of our customers that not only do they want uh, broadband that, that, uh, in their areas, they want PUD3 broadband. Uh, because their expectation is that our service would be uh, as good, if not better, than our electric uh, electric side, which brings the discussion of the wholesale versus retail relationship that we can have with our customers. But I would say that on our list right now of our 34,000 customers, we have a continuous list of about 4,000 uh, uh, residents, customers uh, that are clamoring for it in their neighborhood. Some they just don't have service. Some they don't like the service they have because it's either too expensive or too slow or not reliable. Uh, and then they look at us and say, well, you're always re- reliable with your electricity and your prices are pretty good. Why don't you work to get it out to us so that we can have the same type of quality for our broadband? And the big balance is that wholesale retail relationship that kind of holds us back, but also provides opportunities for local economic development through uh, the formation of businesses that can be that retailer for us. Yeah, and Justin, I'd like to get a little bit of your perspective on this with with how you are expanding the fiber network to some of these residents, um, what that plan is. But uh, maybe we can just start by where Joel left off. I looked at your website, and there's several companies that are offering very high-speed services. So um, how how exactly is that working out for you? Uh, I think it works out well, and, and it works out better for our customers when we have a selection of retailers for them to choose from. Uh, as we know, uh, competition brings price down and brings the best out of everybody, whether it's uh, sports or uh, in business. And uh, as we've had uh, more retailers join our network and offer their services to our customers, our customers are benefiting. They're benefiting by uh, faster speeds and lower prices. And uh, that's one of the things that we really like about our network. It's open access and non-discriminatory. So uh, our customers can choose any of the retailers that are, are partners with us. And, and that's, a, that's a real big win. Justin, let me ask you this, because one of the criticism we've heard, sometimes in theory, sometimes in practice, is that in an open access environment like you have, in which um, there's a, actually a fair level playing field, inevitably one or two firms capture most of the market anyway. Is that something you see or is the, or the distribution of subscribers split a little more evenly among the service providers? We have several, a handful of service providers. They all are participating, from my perspective, at a level that suits their uh, business desire. So we have uh, one business, um, one service provider that you know, maybe isn't so much interested in growing their business, their, their desires to focus on the handful of customers that they have, and they're doing well with that. Um, we have a, another business uh, retail service provider that's been there since the beginning, and they have, you know, the majority of the customers because they have a, uh, maybe a, a more robust name and, and the history there. And we have uh, one, one who's a little bit newer, and, you know, they're doing a really good job of being competitive and, uh, and doing a lot of marketing and advertising about the benefits of fiber all the way to the home. Um, and so they're, 
as we expand the network are, are picking up their you know their share of customers as well. So it, it seems to work out really well for us. We also have two um, providers that are focusing on uh, business or enterprise services, and uh, that's that's a really good niche for them, and uh, that's working out well for them as well. They they aren't interested in doing residential and. Um, you know, in some cases, not not the other way, vice versa. So it's, it seems to work out well. Right. I think that's a it's a really good perspective. Uh, a reminder that even if a business isn't capturing a massive part of the market, they they might be fine with that. Um, so it's a good reminder. Um, so how how are you expanding the network given all this incredible demand to go further with it? Yeah. Well, Chris, I want to go back a little bit to that 2015 um, kind of point that we that we ran into, and I think that that's a, a good place to tell the story of where we sort of pivoted uh, with our network. We have expanded um, the network to most of, not all of, but most of the areas where we need it for the electrical distribution system. Um, while that's always growing, Mason County is a, a defined area, and, and we're pretty well spread throughout there. We've also worked with uh, NoNet, uh, and we've established several uh, cell phone uh, contracts with cell phone towers, and um, you know they have paid to expand uh, the network to some areas as well. So we have a pretty wide, uh, widespread of backbone. NoAnet, for those who um, haven't run across it, is the Northwest Open Access Network. And let me strongly encourage you, if you're unfamiliar with it, to go back in our archives a little bit. We've done several interviews with them. So, um, Justin, please pick up with um, with how you're expanding it beyond the, the electrical and where, where it was in 2015. So in 2015, we really were making a pivot or beginning to make a pivot with uh, our philosophy on how... Uh, we approached the expansion of our fiber network. Um, as you know, uh, we've talked about this, we're able to sell the excess capacity on our network and uh, with fiber in today's optics and electronics, that is near limitless. And uh, the only thing that we were limited by was were the actual physical connections, the physical strands of fiber. So we were just really working hard to try to figure out well, what's our philosophy, what are our construction standards, how are we going to engineer and design this? Uh, we're, you know, we're a bunch of electric utility folks, not so much um, you know, telecom folks. And with electricity, it's easy. You find the wire and you, you, you cut it back and you put a, clamp, a hot clamp on it and there you go. But as you know, with fiber, it's a little bit different. And so as we were exploring on the construction side on uh, how to do this, we were really getting a lot of pressure and interest from our customers to expand fiber to them. Everybody wants it and they want it now. And so uh, we had a high-speed broadband expo uh, where we, we invited all customers in. We focused on several areas that were uh, rural, focused on several areas where we thought there may be some possibilities of doing some uh, pilot project expansions. We had over 800 people uh, join us on a Thursday evening, I believe it was, uh, in, <laughs> in May of 2015. That's crazy. They didn't bring pitchforks, but they brought their pen and they were ready to sign up with their checkbooks and they said, bring it on. We want this now. When 100 people show up at a meeting in on a Thursday night, that's considered huge. Um, 800 is off the charts. So, so congratulations and, and, you know, I guess caution. <laughs> but Yeah, yeah, you know, I think you're on it there. I don't know that we were so wise with this. It was all part of the process and the process was necessary. But, um, you know, we had 800 people ready to, ready to sign up right now. And, um, and that was a big deal. We had, we had a, a place for them to uh, share their interests, record their address. We had this thing where you could stick a, a dot on your home location in Mason County. And so we have this, um, this large 
uh, uh, poster sized chart of Mason County that looks like it has the chicken pox because everybody wants it all over the place. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we had a bunch of stations that could meet our retailers, or the active ones that are on our network, ones that are interested in, in expanding, uh, see their services. And um, really, it was a positive step because it made a very clear um it made our customers' interests very clear. They want to see the fiber network expanded. And unfortunately, you know, you mentioned caution. We have this term that we sort of developed around that time called anticipointment. And this is where people are anticipating something but are disappointed uh, when, when they can't get it. And, um, and that really sort of became the theme of our fiber network, unfortunately. That was never, you know, the intention. But um, that, that kind of became a reality. So we went from uh, 2015, from that uh, big kind of landmark event to, uh, to really needing to buckle down and get our construction standards figured out. So we, we tried several different, we had been working on several different, you know, distribution models. And uh, we were able to identify a couple um, of, of ways that we wanted to go about it. We moved into a, a distribution hut and an, and an RC terminal ready to connect a terminal model for our neighborhoods and we focus on areas where there are uh, where there's overhead power or where there's uh, conduit available and so we, we built a couple of um, uh, networks in several of the more densely populated and I put that in quotation uh, areas in rural Mason County where they didn't have any other uh, of access to high-speed broadband available so we built these networks and um, we're able to work out some kinks with our process and uh, and really establish um, some really good construction and engineering standards and establish some uh, cost measurables so that we could um, move forward and look and see what it would take to to really roll this out um, much, much broader. And so while we were doing that, we also did a survey and we did a survey with our customers. Uh, let's see, this past winter, uh, 2016 to 2017, we did a statistically valid phone survey. So asked several questions such as, you know, what kind of broadband do you have now, um, you know, so we can measure the need. And then we wanted to measure the desire. Are you interested in seeing the PUD expand? And then uh, we also asked, if we expand, are you interested in paying a little more per month on your broadband bill to pay for uh, the, the cost of the expansion? And the overwhelming answers were, no, we don't have broadband access or we're not satisfied with it. And yes, we want PUD to build it. And yes, we're willing to pay extra. So that was the part of serving our customers with that statistically valid phone survey. And then several months later, uh, we did an online survey so that we could um, have give everybody the opportunity to uh, to respond if they wanted. Uh, we also had a, a mail-in uh, ballot as well, if you will. And uh, the results were pretty consistent across the board. And Joel, I'd like to, to bring you back into this. One of the things we've seen with surveys in some of the other public utility districts is a question of whether they want to modestly increase the, the price of electricity to help finance the cost of the fiber. And it, it sounds like you're actually focused on making sure the broadband customers alone are the ones paying for the expansion. I'm, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about your thinking about that. We've seen this question come up again and again at other utilities in Washington State as to whether or not customers A, want it, B, would be willing to pay extra on their electricity bill uh, to, to share the, the, the costs of bringing the, the service out. And it's been kind of mixed in the answers and the results. For example, uh, in one study, I remember there was a question about that. And so the utility started to expand. And when they expanded and started talking about an adder on the electricity bill, people suddenly got all excited about it. So it, it proved that 
while your survey may say that the actual implementation may not be as uh, as real life there so we we wanted to make sure that those who would benefit from uh, the broadband service would be the ones that would be actually paying for it which is their vote uh if you will paying with their dollars that yep we want it we're willing to pay for it here's my check uh that would come through the retailer so seeing those experiences and also our gut feelings as to how our electrical customers would feel if there was an adder onto their electricity bill for it gave us that kind of weather vane to move us in that direction. And we did. And uh, I think it's really interesting when you start taking a look at the Fiberhood Project, which we'll discuss later, that, that people are voting with their dollars and their feet on this, that, that they want it, they're willing to pay for it, and, uh, uh, and will. So, Joel, one of the things that we recently did an interview with Kitsap where they are using um, a model uh, where the um, people in a neighborhood can petition the utility to expand it. And I, I think you're going in a little different direction. Maybe you can explain that model and, and just enlighten us a little bit about that. There are various uh, funding models that are available through the public uh, realm in Washington state to help fund facility expansion and, and growth. And most of those tend towards the local utility district, local improvement district type model. They're very, very uh, intricate and cumbersome and take a long time to form and also to close out. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, Kitsap has done, and I, and I applaud them for that, is that some of their local utility district uh, extensions have been in part of other utility extensions as well. So it's kind of a package of utilities that's moving into a, a community. So there's a greater benefit than just the broadband coming in, which makes it a little bit more easy to use the those state funding models. Because one of the things that, that, uh, that you run up against is if you do an improvement through a local utilities district or a local improvement district, the value of your property increase is the most that you can charge for an assessment for bringing that improvement to the property. So if the if the property improvement is $1,000 in valuation, that's all you can charge them under state law. And your extension could cost more than that per, per customer. So taking a look at not only the, the cumbersome nature of those funding measures, but also some of the legalistic restrictions that are placed on you on how you can assess it, uh, that for a local utility district, just expanding broadband and no other public utilities as part of it becomes a little bit of a problematic approach. Um, Justin, you want to just dive in and talk about how you've uh, expanded? We were looking at all of these different uh, inputs and, and pieces of information um, from our engineering standards to our customers' desire to um, the survey responses to the LUD models that some of our neighbors were using. And we decided that there had to be a way to blend all of this together and put it, uh, create a solution uh, that would be able to meet um, everybody's, uh, everybody's desire. And uh, that birthed our Fiberhood program. And uh, our Fiberhood program is, is really uh, quite simple. So PUD has reviewed its service territory and has designated uh, specific boundaries or borders. We have uh, 20 on launch, and uh, that represents the potential to serve uh, several thousand customers. Um, and uh, within these fiberhoods, uh, we've let customers know that, that they are uh, up for consideration of potentially receiving a fiber network being uh, expanded to and built throughout their neighborhood. And uh, we partnered with the COS systems. COOS is what we've been calling it in-house. 
um, systems are out of Sweden, and they have a, a fantastic uh, software platform uh, that, that we've been using to, uh, to, to communicate and interface with our customers on this. That's uh, the Service Zones platform, right? So our customers uh, log on to our website, pud3.org slash fiberhood, and they launch the COS Systems Service Zones application, and all they have to do is type in their address. If their address is within a fiberhood, uh, then they're able to make a commitment. And once 75% of the customers within the fiberhood make a commitment, PUD3 will, uh, will extend fiber and build a distribution network to serve them. Uh, it really is uh, quite simple, and, uh, and it's, it's been very, very successful so far. Um, as I mentioned, we have about 20 uh, fiberhoods. We launched it in early August, and we have uh, several that are uh, very, very close. One fiberhood is about seven signups away. And, uh, and we have others on its, ta- on its tail. So uh, very excited about that process, and we're looking forward to launching that. I'm curious, the ones that are, um, that are the most popular, that are the closest to, to um, hitting fruition, are they ones that have zero service providers currently, or are they ones who are more, they have an option, but they're not happy with it? We didn't qualify customers that have other service provider options in fiberhoods. And so really, if you're a fiberhood, um, you have a DSL or worse. And, and so, so these people are, are ones that don't have any high-speed broadband options available. Uh, we have several providers in Mason County, um, and we are staying out of their territory for several reasons. The first is we want to focus on those that don't have uh, service, just like that uh, public utility model in the beginning uh, that we talked about. Um, we want to make sure we're providing service to those that don't have it available. We also don't want to um, infringe upon or overbuild uh, a private company. That's their deal, so they should uh, they should be working on that. And we also don't want to expand a network very near them, um, in which case they would then overbuild us, and uh, that's that's no good either. Um, so uh, we have uh, our focus on uh, customers that don't have other service options. Some of my more aggressive listeners, <laughs> and myself included, uh, would say, um, well, I hope that over time you will be expanding your network to everyone. Presumably it will be up to uh, people themselves whether or not um, ultimately you are competing with some of the existing providers. Um, just in the sense that while I, I certainly agree with you that you want to be um, careful about about respecting the private investments that others are making, to some extent, um, you may see some negative side effects if um, you have part areas that have a high quality network and areas that are served but served poorly by a cable company or something. They they might get more frustrated. So, I'm um, you know in the longer term, I'm curious if you think that you'll be expanding that network into more areas. I would say that. Uh, in the longer term is a long term for us. <laughs> we have we have a very large and very rural community, uh, c- uh, county Mason County, and there are many 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 areas that do not have other options. So uh, the work ahead of us is is great, and um, we want to make sure that we are uh, meeting the needs of those that don't have options before uh, we meet the needs of those that do have options or maybe are receiving poor options. Uh, so while Someday that may change. Um, right now, our focus really is on those that don't have uh, options. And I think that that's just a, a look at, at Mason County. Um, you know, our trees outnumber our people by a lot. And so we're, we are quite rural here. And it's it's worth remembering that western counties can be the size of eastern states. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a good point. We are the size of Rhode Island, I believe. Is that correct, Joel? 
That is correct. Right. So, so there's a, some good perspective there. Um, that is correct. It, it's it's interesting to note when you take a look at the various municipal broadband uh, models throughout the United States that there's a panoply of them. I mean, you've got cities who are given broad authorities by their states to provide no, a number of services for their citizens. And in Washington state, where the law is silent on an authority, it's assumed that a city or a county or a general government have the authority to do it. So that's why you see see, see some cities uh, going out and uh, building uh, municipal broadband networks on their own and competing as a retailer because they have authority under it. Uh, you have electric co-ops that can pretty do almost almost anything they want going out as a retail service provider and using their member revenues to build that up. Uh, they are not under a, a state charter, so therefore they can do things like that. Whereas Washington State Public Utility District law is a little bit different. Uh, whereas, as I mentioned with cities where it's silent on authorities, uh, that they have it as long as it's legal, public utility districts only have the authorities that are expressly given to them under Washington state law. So if it doesn't mention it, we don't have the authority. So specifically, the authority we have is wholesale broadband services or telecommunication services that will always require a retailer as the contact with the customer. Our customers are initially the uh, the retail service providers. The ultimate customers of those retail service providers are the end users. And we have to make sure that that, that, that model is followed very carefully because it's being very, very closely watched, not only by the legislature and state regulators, but also folks who see this as competition. One of the things that we've seen in a lot of places is that that model is particularly challenging financially, which is one of the reasons that we've mentioned uh, NOAA-NET, the Northwest Open Access Network, because um, you were one of the founding members. And I think the success of that organization is one of the reasons we've seen open access be more successful in Washington state than in other states. I agree. I mean, the NOANET has gained the capacity and the reputation of being a very good partner with people who either fund it or get service from it. And uh, and we're really proud of that uh, because uh, it's a unique type of uh, organization. And I think that it will only continue as that reputation for a can-do it attitude and good management of assets uh, continues for NOANET. It'll continue the expansion to very rural areas of Washington State. Well, Justin, speaking of the expansion to rural areas, there's always the question of how one pays for it. So uh, within this system that you've described with the service zones from from COS, um, how exactly does it work that, that you can afford to build this out? Add that to the challenges of being wholesale only. And as a public utility district, we have to do everything at cost. So there's not a profit margin here. Um, our revenues need to equal our costs, and, and that's to the benefit of our customer. Um, so the way that it works is uh, once a fiberhood reaches their 75% threshold, they make it on the construction list and we build the network. We have uh, what we're calling a construction adder. This would be a $25 charge per month on top of the customer's internet retail service provider's bill. And this, this $25 per month is to recover the cost of building uh, the, the fiber extension, the distribution network, and all the way to the home. So we're building all the way to the home with fiber. And uh, this $25 per month uh, will last for 12 years. So it is a, a 12-year term. And if a customer comes in and uh, takes service on you know, day one, 
and we build to their home and connect them. Uh, they take uh, internet service, then they pay that $25 per month. But maybe life happens two years down the road. Uh, they, they move or uh, you know, lose their job or, or life, life changes somehow. And they say, gosh, I just can't afford to have internet again uh, or right now. Uh, then, they, uh, then they don't take internet service and they don't pay that $25 per month. Um, on the other side, let's say somebody uh, maybe has a piece of property that they haven't developed yet, but they still are interested when they do move into the county to, uh, to get fiber. Uh, they, may, um, they may sign up on the, the COS software and say, yes, I'm interested. Uh, but uh, once, we, once they reach their goal and once we build the network, they're not ready to connect. Maybe six years down the road, they do uh, show up and they build a home and uh, want to connect it to fiber. Well, their $25 per month starts when they start taking service. And it only lasts until the end of that 12-year term that the fiberhood is under. So uh, it really is tied to uh, only the customers that are taking service are paying to help recover the cost of the investment. And I think we talked about that earlier um, in, the, in the show. That was pretty important that we weren't having all electrical subscribers um, subsidize the cost of the fiber expansion. And even within the fiberhood, if you weren't interested in it, you didn't sign up for it, you're also not paying for it. I think that's a really key piece here. I think one of the things that, that may help you out with that, where that may not be as viable in other areas, is that you are building to areas where they have no choices. And so you are you, you know that you're going to get a lot of people to connect. And so you don't really have to worry too much that those economics won't pencil out for you, I'm guessing. Correct. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, we we are looking at a, a cost recovery model that is that is pretty conservative and it lasts over a longer period of time. Um, in these rural communities, uh, what we often see is that there are um, you know lower economic uh, abilities to pay for large line extensions up front, uh, and so by spreading it out over that 12-year term, we're also allowing um, maybe some of our lower income or, or um, uh, customers that, that couldn't afford that to be able to access, have access to high-speed broadband. I think that's a really key piece there too. For other listeners that might be interested, we looked at several, um, several models, uh, many, um, but two of them that, that came to the front uh, that we really explored were uh, the putting a lien on a property for the investment um, and we found that that was just going to be too cumbersome, um, both legally and uh, in enforcing. Um, and the other was the personal loan. And we thought that also was very limiting in our ability. And so instead of tying the $25 to the customer's PUD electric bill, we decided to tie it to their internet service provider's bill. That way we could ensure that if you weren't taking service and therefore weren't benefiting from the network, you also weren't contributing to it. Our customers, I will say, in the survey, preferred it to be on uh, the PUD's bill. Uh, I think it's because we're a trusted community partner. But uh, we found that there were some uh, struggles with that. If a customer didn't pay their internet bill, uh, could we disconnect their electricity? No. If a customer didn't pay their electricity bill, uh, you know, could we disconnect their internet? Well, that really wasn't tied together. Um, maybe uh, they didn't pay their, uh, their internet extension um, payment, and uh, so then we'd have to let their uh, retail service provider know that we we're going to have to disconnect them. And that would be um, exposing potentially, you know, a, a personal hardship to the retail service provider or that would get in the way of their business relationship. And so that was messy as well. And so we found that um, putting that $25 uh, construction adder on top of the $35 per month for gig service, to, um, which goes to the retailer bill, it just became really clean 
and uh, and a really nice defining line on who's paying for what service. That's a it's a great description of a, of an interesting approach and one of many that I hope is going to bring high quality internet service to everyone in rural America. So thank you both for coming on the show to tell us more about what you're up to. Happy to do it, Chris. Uh, and that's uh, really great of you to, to invite us, and we'd love to tell uh, tell the story. We're really proud of it, um, and and we're also in agreement. You know, if everybody in Mason County could have a gig up, gig down uh, service um, through PUD3 Fiber, that'd just be fantastic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Christopher with Justin Holsgrove and Joel Meyer talking about Public Utility District 3 in Washington and how they're bringing high-quality connectivity to every customer in Mason County. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by also subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 274 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Podcast.